On our church calendar, this is technically the second Sunday in January. Ignore January 1st. It's the second Sunday, which means we're focusing this morning on outreach and missions. And what a perfect passage we're going to cover today that fits within that that theme. This January also marks the 61st anniversary since the death of missionary Jim Elliott. Now, many of you know something of the story of Jim Elliott, either by way of the book that was written by his widow, Elizabeth, a book called Through Gates of Splendor, or through a film that was done in 2006 called End of the Spear, which I highly recommend, by the way. It's the story of, of five American missionaries, Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, and Roger Udarian, who were killed by members of a primitive tribe in Ecuador called the Aka Indians. This was January 1956. All these young men, all five of them, were either in their late 20s or early 30s. They had established a camp in this remote part of the Ecuadorian jungle along a river, and they were, they were hoping to make contact with these Indians, this tribe who had, up until that point had never heard the name of Jesus. They were there for six days, and they were slowly integrating themselves into building trust with these primitive band of, of Indians. Eventually, after these six days, a band of these Aka warriors stormed out of the jungle and attacked the missionaries on the beach and killed all of them with their spears. Let me show you a picture just so you can get an idea of what we're talking about. This is Jim Elliott on the left. This is Nate Saint on the right, who I believe was the pilot and is, at that point, this is a couple days before he was killed, talking to, communicating with this, this native and showing him a model of the plane that they had flown in on. Now, Jim Elliott is an example of somebody who understood his calling, understood it from a young age. Born into a Christian family in 1930, he came to know Christ at the age of of six and spurred on by his parents. His life was so devoted to following Christ that some of his choices, if we looked at them today, we'd say those things are pretty radical. In fact, I'll give you three areas where he was most radical, grades, girls, and guns. First of all, with grades, in 1945, he was a student at Wheaton College, and his grades began to suffer. In fact, after one particularly awful semester, he wrote to his parents and said, I can't help it, I simply want to scour the Bible. I want to spend all my time in the Word so that I can understand the missionary calling that God has for me. And he unapologetically told his parents that he considered the study of God's Word more important than his academics. Secondly, girls. While he was at Wheaton, he met his future wife, Elizabeth Howard. She was a classmate and the sister of his roommate. And though the two were immediately attracted to one another, Jim wasn't ready to to propose just yet. He wanted to sense God's leading in that, so he didn't pursue a romantic relationship right away. It wasn't until each of them went individually to Ecuador, into the mission field, that they felt called to be married. And finally, guns. On that fateful day when he was killed, Jim Elliott and all the men who had gone to Ecuador had guns on them when they were attacked. But each man had promised he would not kill a native to save himself. After all, that was their harvest field. And it was that sacrificial decision that had a ripple effect for God's kingdom. When Elizabeth Elliott and Rachel Saint, Nate's sister, went back to work with that very same tribe, Many of them came to know Christ 
because of the example set by Jim and those missionaries. In fact, some of the very natives who were on the beach that day, who were involved in the murders, came to know Christ as Savior and Lord. In fact, the whole tribe was transformed by the grace of God through the example of Jim Elliott and his friends. And their story continues to inspire people today, Christians who go off into the mission field not really knowing what God has in store for them, but willing to lay down their lives if necessary so that God's name, so that Christ would be magnified to the ends of the earth. And what Jim Elliott wrote in his journal just a few months before he was killed continues to challenge us today. He wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This morning we're going to look at another missionary who had a a pretty big impact on the world and who also was martyred for his faith. So grab your Bibles. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 beginning in verse 1. Now, we read these same seven verses last Sunday. We're coming back to them today. Last Sunday was our introduction, so we looked at the bookends, verse 1 and verse 7. Today, we're coming back to look particularly at verses 2 through 6. And by the way, these seven verses in the Greek text are one very long run-on sentence. Never would have passed English class. But if you're using a New American Standard or using an ESV, you'll find that they've tried pretty hard to stick with the Greek text by not adding a bunch of periods and creating multiple sentences out of it. What they've tried to do is put a whole bunch of commas in there so as to capture the spirit of the Greek text. In fact, I think I counted 12 commas in all between verses 1 and 7. And of course, it makes for an awkward structure, but we'll work our way through it. Now, it's interesting, in most of his letters, Paul is pretty brief with his greetings, usually a verse, two, three, maybe four. Here we have seven verses, and most importantly, weaved within this greeting of who he is and who he's writing to is all of this amazing theology, which makes the greeting in the book of Romans very, very unique. So let's read beginning in verse one, hear the word of God. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle... Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, comma, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in, in where? In Rome, called to saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned last week in the introduction that the theme, the overall theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. It's in the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed. And so our focus this morning is on defining and explaining what the gospel is, particularly from a missionary perspective. What is the gospel? And that's exactly what Paul desired to do to this first century Roman church, to define in these first seven verses and explain what the gospel was from his perspective as an apostle. So let's start with some of the basics. Go back and look at verse 1 real quick. It says that Paul says he claims that he's been set apart for the gospel of God. Now right away, let me just say this. It's very easy for us to take a word like gospel and ho-hum it. Meaning, I've heard this a million times, Jeff. What's the big deal? The, the late great British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that Christians can easily uh, allow familiar words like the gospel to become so commonplace that we're no longer moved by them. It becomes so normal to us in our language 
that we're no longer thrilled or moved to the depths of our being when we look at the good news of this thing we call the gospel. And friends, I think it's something we need to take seriously. In a conservative Bible-teaching church like ours, where we focus on the gospel and we talk about it a lot, we need to guard our hearts and minds from allowing this word, this, this idea, this grand story to just become commonplace. Let it not happen. So what exactly is the gospel? I want to get beyond the platitudes throughout this series in the book of Romans, beyond the English word itself, which, by the way, if you study the etymology on the word, it goes back all the way back to the ancient Anglo-Saxons. It was a word, they, they pronounced it Godspell, which meant a good story or a good message. In ancient times, it'd be used to describe almost anything that happened that was good. A baby was born in the tribe, or, or somebody recovered from an illness, and that was referred to as Godspell, a good story or a good message. But in the Greek text of the Bible, this word is very, very unique. I'll put it on the screen for you. Euangelion. And from that word, we get the, the English word evangelism and evangelical. The gospel speaks of a specific story, a definitive message of good news for all of humankind, promised in the Old Testament scriptures and rooted and centered in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the good news that God has provided a remedy for the greatest need that mankind has, forgiveness of sins. Let me say that again. It's the good news that God has provided a remedy for man's greatest need, the forgiveness of his sins. Now, notice how Paul says here in verse 1 that it's the gospel of God. That's very important. Don't just let that go by. Oftentimes we read, especially guys, we read greetings, and we have a tendency to read right through it without paying attention. But notice he says the gospel of God. Now, why would Paul add of God here? Isn't it enough just to say the gospel? But what Bible historians see here is Paul responding to his critics, Responding to those in the first century who were claiming that Paul had created his own message. That he was out there preaching some warped version of Judaism. That it was, it was Paul's creation and not from God. And Paul says, no, this is the gospel of God. I didn't make it up. Didn't make it up. I'm just the messenger. It's from God and it's about God. It's of God. And so that's very, very important. Now, earlier in verse 1, Paul had referred to himself in a couple of very important ways with, with two titles. He'd call himself first a bondservant and then an apostle, right? We talked about these last Sunday. The first was his core identity. What Paul saw as his core identity was as his slave, a bondservant. Having been bought with a price and redeemed by Jesus, Paul saw all of his life, all of who he was at his very core, to be a slave to his new master. The second was what we call a calling. And he received this back in Acts chapter 9. Remember having, having uh, been confronted by the risen Lord on the Damascus road? God made, made Paul's calling as an apostle very, very clear. It says this, he is a chosen instrument of mine. God said that about Paul. He's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So Paul, first of all, is a slave. Second of all, he's got this unique calling as an apostle. And then here at the end of verse 1, Paul expands on that calling by saying that he's been set apart for the gospel of God. Now, what does it mean to be set apart? In a literal sense, it means uh, to mark something off from others by way of a boundary. So think about this for a second. A cattle rancher 
who owns a whole bunch of land and a whole bunch of cattle. He builds a fence. He marks something off, and then he brings his own cattle into within that boundary to graze on his land. He has set apart his cattle from all the rest by marking them off within that fence. As a called apostle, Paul has been marked off and separated from the rest of mankind for one very specific task, to be God's gospel messenger to the Gentile world. Can you imagine that type of calling? By the way, Paul, I want you to be just the whole Gentile world. Ready, go. All the nations, this is your calling among men. I've set you apart. I've marked you off for this task. You can imagine the responsibility. And Paul will dedicate his entire life to that calling and eventually even die for it. He'll be martyred for the sake of the gospel. So how did Paul relate the gospel to the believers in Rome? Well, in this seven-verse greeting, what we see him doing is describing the gospel in two primary ways, and both are critically important to understand. The first one is this, that the gospel was promised long ago in the scriptures. End of verse one. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. The gospel didn't just suddenly burst upon the scene of human history when Christ was born, did it? It didn't just suddenly appear. Again, Paul's reminding the Roman church that he didn't invent the message. This gospel has been around a long, long time. In fact, the promised good news of God's remedy for sin is the theme of all the prophets, indeed of the entire Old Testament. All of it foreshadows the gospel and points to the fulfillment of the gospel in the person of Christ. Think about it. The seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. The tragic story of Cain and Abel. Abraham sparing the life of his son Isaac. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system. Isaiah's prophecy concerning the one who will come and be pierced for our transgressions crushed as a guilt offering. All of these things, folks, from the Old Testament point to the gospel. So Paul's first point is, look, it's been around a long time. I didn't create this. I didn't invent it. Check the scriptures for yourself. During the days of World War II, there was a thing called the French Underground. When the Nazis had occupied France, the French Underground had to do things in secret. And they had a way, a very a very simple means of identifying who their secret agents were. What they would do is simply take a piece of paper and they would tear it in two very irregular pieces and they would give one half to one agent and they would either mail or courier the other half to another agent. So when those two men met up and they weren't sure of whether the other person was legitimate or not, they would simply pull out their two pieces of paper and guess what? They would fit perfectly together. And that meant that they were legitimate members of the French underground. Well, in a similar way, Jesus fulfills all the promises found in the Old Testament. When you put the pages together, think the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you put them together, they fit. They fit. There's only one match that brings them together to fit rightly, and that's Jesus of Nazareth. There is no other. And it fits together into one piece. So Paul's saying, look, follow the signs. God has promised the gospel beforehand so you can follow what Moses says and what David says and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and Daniel. They will tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
They will tell you where he will be born, whose descendants will be, what he will do, how he will be portrayed, how he will die an agonizing death, how he will be raised from the dead to life. Look at the Old Testament signs. See where they're pointing. And they will lead you to the promised Christ who appears in the fullness of time. That's what Paul's telling the Roman church here, even in this greeting in these seven verses. And so here's Paul. He's relying upon the Old Testament to give him authority and credibility in front of his audience. And we're going to see him, by the way, do this throughout the letter. He's going to constantly be pointing back to the Old Testament, putting those two pieces of paper together, drawing a line of continuity from the promises of the Old Testament to the fulfillment in the New Testament in the person of Christ. Catch this. In Romans, Paul will quote from the Old Testament 57 times. More than all the Old Testament quotes in all of his other letters combined. That tells you something about the case that Paul is trying to build as he writes to the Roman church. So the first thing Paul wants the Romans to know is that the gospel precedes him. It comes from the pages of the Old Testament. And that's very important to see. The second one is this. The gospel is rooted in Christology. Now, what is Christology? Go ahead and say it. The doctrine of Christ, right? A proper Christology. The gospel has to be rooted in a proper Christology. Jesus is at the very center of this euangelion, this good news. He's at the very center of it. Do you remember how back in Matthew 16, Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, well, look, other people say this about me and that about me. Who do you say that I am? Isn't that the crucial question? Who do you say that I am? I don't care if you're sitting in a coffee house and you're, you're, you're sharing the gospel with an unbeliever or you're, you're talking to a Mormon who knocks on your door or you're sitting down with a person who professes to know Christ but their life doesn't match up with who they say they are. Their life doesn't match up with, with, with the Christian life. The question always comes back to this. Well, let me ask you, who do you say Jesus is? I mean, if we can focus on that, guys, if you can eliminate all the distractions in your sharing of the gospel and not get tied up in knots over all kinds of little details and nuances and come back to that question, you're going to find that God will work through that. Who is Jesus? Because if Jesus claimed to be who he claimed to be, and if he's the person who the scriptures present him to be, then he is Lord of all. Don't take that lightly. He is Lord of all, and that puts a claim on our lives. If Jesus is Lord, we will either bow before him in worship and obedience or we will suffer the eternal consequences of our unbelief. Those are the only choices, aren't they? Paul wants the Roman believers to understand this. So here in verses 3 and 4, Paul's goal is to show the Roman church three things about Jesus. Proper Christology. Here they are. Number one, that Jesus is God's eternal son. Number two, that Jesus is of the promised line of David And three, that he is now resurrected from the dead and he is exalted to the place of power and glory. This is proper Christology. Look at verse three. Notice how Paul says, concerning his son who was born. At the outset, it's important for us to understand that Jesus is eternal in nature. In the beginning was the word, right? John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He's eternal. Before Abraham was born, Jesus said, I am. 
I am. Using the very root word for Yahweh. I am. Before Aaron was born, I am. John 8, 58. Later in John 17, we read Jesus praying to his father. And he talks about how he shared in the glory of his father in eternity past. So Jesus' eternal nature precedes any thought of his role in salvation history. He is, first of all, the second person of the triune God. We start there. Now, coming back to the text in Romans, Paul says, the son who was born. Well, the Greek verb there, ginomai, this translated born, speaks of something more than just a simple birth. It's a word that speaks of becoming. It's, it speaks of a new phase of existence for Jesus. And this is where it just blows your mind, right, when you think about this. That the second person of the Trinity would come into a new phase of existence as a human being. I mean, that should make you just sort of fall on your face. Like, really? That the, that the eternal son would come into this phase of existence that he would add to his divine nature a second nature, a human nature. That's amazing. His nature was already divine, and now he possessed both. And this is what makes the incarnation so amazing when I think about this. The second person of the Trinity is omni-everything, Right? He knows all things, and yet, in an experiential sense, when he takes on flesh, he takes on something new. Now, try to wrap your your mind around those two truths. He knows everything, and yes, he knows what it is to be a human being, but now he knows it firsthand. In an experiential sense, God took on something new. That's amazing. Jesus is the eternal Son of God sent into the world by the Father, an eternal being who entered into time and space and took on a mortal body. So he is both fully man and fully God. And I know that's basic Christology because we talk about it a lot. But folks, listen, if you don't understand that, and if you don't affirm that, you will never understand the gospel. Because the gospel can't be separated from right Christology. So that's really important. Now, second... What kind of human lineage did Jesus take on? Why does that matter? Paul describes the humanity of Jesus in verse 3. He says, who was born, and I know if you have an NIV, it says, as to his earthly life, he was a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now, that's another connection back to the Holy Scriptures, right? You might recall in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had promised David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne for how long? Forever. How do you do that? Have you ever thought about that? Here's the promise, uh, David. One of your descendants will sit on the throne forever. Really? For eternity? How is that possible unless that king will be eternal in nature? Israel's Messiah would come from the seed of David. That's the line of promise. And that specific lineage was then confirmed in the New Testament records, by the way, both on Mary's side and on Joseph's side. And so Jesus has the right pedigree. He has the specific lineage that gives him this rightful inheritance to the scepter and throne of Judah, both biologically and legally. He fits the bill. He is that piece of paper. When you put it together, you say, who can possibly fit all these things? Here's Jesus. Boom. Perfect. He fits the bill. He fulfills every promise. Near the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 22, Jesus testifies that this is true about himself. 
He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So we have, we have Luke's testimony in the gospel of his lineage, and we have Jesus' self-testimony in Revelation 22. Jesus has the proper pedigree. He is the Jewish Messiah, the son of David, and the one who fulfills all those promises from the Old Testament. And scripture makes it clear that this eternal son of God took on full and complete humanity. Meaning everything that we experience except for that nasty little thing we call sin. All of it. Complete and full humanity. And because of that, he is the only one who qualifies to bear our sin on the cross. He is the only one who's lived a perfect life who can go to that cross and represent humanity and pay the ransom for sin. No other person can. And he is the one who has now earned the right to be our one and only high priest. One who can make intercession between man and God. Because he has both natures, divine and human. And he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he's walked in our shoes. Guys, if you ever get down in your walk with Christ, if you're ever struggling, saying, Lord, I don't understand what's going on, know that he walked as you walked. He walked in your shoes. He can sympathize with your weaknesses. He is not detached. He is not far off. He's not up there saying, oh, you poor humans. You don't get it. He's saying, no, I understand. I felt that too. That's a beautiful thing. There's no other so-called God that can say that. Can Allah say that? No. Only Jesus. So after establishing this important human connection to the Old Testament scriptures, Paul now addresses the third issue that you see on the screen, the power and the glory of Jesus. Look what it says in the text. Born a descendant of David according to the flesh, verse 4, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now don't be confused here. Paul's not saying that Jesus became God's Son only through the resurrection, because we know he's already, prior to taking on flesh, he was already the eternal Son of God. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus was elevated to a new level of power and glory by virtue of, of his being raised from the dead. In other words, the resurrection puts an exclamation point on his divinity. Here's an easy way to think of it. Jesus went from being the eternal son of God as Messiah to the eternal son of God as Messiah and also powerful and reigning Lord. So powerful and so exalted that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is what? That he is Lord. That he is Lord. And that's Paul's conclusion. If you look at the end of verse 4, the conclusion is simply this. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Don't miss it. Don't miss this. End of verse 4. This is significant. This is a phrase that Paul loves to use. We're going to see it so many times. He likes to use it in its complete form. Jesus Christ, our Lord, or our Lord, Jesus Christ. He uses it 68 times in his letters. He loves to say it. He loves to shout it from the rooftops, exclaim it, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, is Lord. That's an amen moment. That was weak. But thank you, Mike. When Paul calls Jesus Kurios, or Lord, he's reminding us of something essential 
to who we are as Christians. Just in case we might fall into the trap of somehow believing that Jesus is just our Savior, that we can say a prayer and accept him into our heart and then move on with our lives, Paul says absolutely not. He makes it very clear. He never gives us the option to say, well, I'd like to try Jesus as my Savior so I can get that fire insurance so I'll be saved from hell, but that's really all I'm signing up for. He doesn't give us that option. He doesn't say, well, I think I'll wait to make him my Lord. I'd like to run my own life for a while, and someday, maybe closer to my death, I'll make him my Lord. Not an option. Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you call Jesus Lord, it should mean that he is the absolute and undisputed owner and possessor of your life. That he is the master, and you have signed up as a bondservant, a slave to him. If you call Jesus Lord, it ought to mean that you look on him as having authority over every one of your thoughts, your emotions, your needs, and your choices. He is Lord over every aspect of your life, and he is deserving of your loyalty and your worship and your obedience. Now, are we going to do that perfectly? No. But he's our Lord, and he is our king. So verses 3 and 4 leave us with this impressive accumulation of Christological titles. Son of God, Seed of David, Messiah, and Lord. And these verses remind us that, again, the gospel cannot possibly be understood apart from a right understanding of who Jesus is. Amen? Good. Now before we wrap up, let me make a quick observation about the gospel that Paul's describing here. See, I have this, this fear, and I sort of touched on it earlier, that churchgoers today, especially in churches like ours, conservative Bible teaching, churches that talk about the gospel a lot, that folks will see the gospel as nothing more than this elementary truth of the Christian life. Like that's, the gospel is the first thing I, I, I sort of walk into and I believe, and then I move on to much deeper things. That, I think that's a, a, a fairly common uh, thought in the church today. But I want us to guard against that thinking. Friends, the gospel is the so-called deep things of Christianity. And I know there's a lot of things to get distracted with. We can get off into nuances and debates about end time stuff and all kinds of things. We can, we can parse the Greek and we can do all this stuff. But the gospel stands at the center of our faith as the deepest and most profound truth that we can explore. And it ought to be explored every day that you wake up. It is the deep things Think about this. In heaven, when we've been there a thousand years, bright shining as the sun as the song goes, we will still be overwhelmed by the good news of the gospel. For all eternity, we will still be absorbed in this marvelous glory of this story of redemption and ransom from sin. We'll still be full of joy unspeakable. We will still be worshiping God for all of eternity because of the good news of the gospel. So why would we ever think, well, that's the, that's the surfacey stuff that we move on from. It's the deep stuff. It's the PhD work. It's not the elementary school work. It's the best of all news, that God has made provision for sinners like you and me to live with him forever. Do not, please, friends, brothers and sisters, do not take the gospel for granted. Preach it to yourself every day. Remind yourself of it every day. When you get together, talk about it. When you go to C groups, talk about it. Share it with other people. It is the deep things, amen? So why share all this stuff about Old Testament prophecy and New Testament Christology in the very opening sentence of this letter? What is Paul trying to do here? 
See, this is the question that whenever I read stuff like this, I go, well, this is beautiful theology, but why? Why does he want to tell this particular church at this particular time about these things? Well, look at verse 5. I think we get an answer here. Verse 5 says, Through whom, that's, that's through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So folks, here's what Paul's doing in this. Here's the purpose of all this theology in his greeting. He's providing his credentials to the believers in Rome. He started by saying, look, first and foremost, I'm a bondservant just like you, but second, I have a special calling. I've been set apart for something greater than myself, set apart for this gospel of God, which is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, which is centered in his son, and he has, here it is, he has given me his grace to be an apostle. He has given me his grace to be his apostle. He has divinely enabled me to carry out this mission. And what is the mission? Middle of verse 5. To call the Gentile world to an obedience of faith. And by the way, he says, that includes you guys in Rome. This, you are part of my mission. You guys in Rome too, you are the called of Jesus. You've been set apart, not as apostles, but you've been set apart for salvation. Set apart for salvation as sons and daughters of the Most High. This is my calling, Paul says. This is the grace that I've specifically received to be an apostle. And then true to form, if you look at the end of the verse here, he says, end of verse 5, he says, look, this is not about me. This is for his name's sake. This is for his glory that I received this grace and apostleship. See, Paul realized that he wasn't that special. This is important for servants, right? People who serve in the church, people who go into ministry. Too many of us, we got big egos, man. We really believe that we're out there doing the work and that because of our hard work, because of our skill, because of our spirituality, that the results are happening. Paul never believed that about himself. It was always for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, always for his glory. I read a, um, we're going to wrap up here, read an encouraging short story this week, and I want to challenge you with this as we close. Now, I'd heard this story before, but it, For some reason, it never really registered, but as I read it again this week, it really struck me. Let me read the story to you. Glenn Coffey was a great football player. Like many young men, he dreamed about playing in the NFL, and after a successful high school career, Coffey accepted a scholarship to the University of Alabama. Anybody ever heard of that school? Yeah, pretty good football program. In 2008, he concluded his collegiate career by leading his team in rushing, Coffey then realized his NFL dream when he was drafted by the San Francisco 49ers. During his first season with the 49ers, Coffey was the team's number two running back. Many fans had high hopes for him going into the 2010 season, but in August of that year, the 23-year-old Coffey shocked the country when he walked away from his $2.5 million contract. Why did he leave the NFL? He believes that the NFL is not God's will for his life. Coffee had become a Christian in his junior year of college, and that decision changed his views on everything. He simply determined that the NFL wasn't where he needed to be. Now, I've done some updating. He's actually in Ranger School right now, serving in the military. Could you do that? 
I asked myself that question. Could you turn down $2.5 million if you felt God calling you somewhere else? Would you be willing to forsake your personal hopes, your dreams, and your goals in exchange for the gospel and the glory of God? I see the wheels turning right now. 2.5 million reasons not to. Now, chances are you're not going to be tested like Glenn Coffey was. But the idea of it is worthy of consideration, isn't it? How much do I value the gospel? I've said this before, but I, I think it bears repeating as we talk about calling. Every person in this room, if you, if you claim that Jesus is Lord and Savior of your life, you are in the ministry. Congratulations. We're all in the ministry. Now, Paul's calling was unique as an apostle, right? We know that. But all of us can look at verse 5, and we can substitute ourselves into that verse. Paul says, we've received grace and apostleship. So put yourself in there. I've received grace and a teaching role in my local church. I've received grace and a spot on the worship team. I've received grace and the privilege of working in children's ministries. Whatever it might be. It might be I've received grace to be a vibrant member of the setup and breakdown team at Oak Hill. Amen? Grant's like, amen. Yeah. Put yourself in the verse. I've received grace in a role working with our youth or hosting a C group or being an usher or just being a prayer warrior for others in the body. This is what I want to leave, leave you with, guys. We've all received grace and a calling. All of us. Question is, do you increasingly view your life as set apart for the gospel? Oh, but Jeff, I'm not an apostle. I'm not a pastor. I'm not the guy who stands up there and flaps his gums. I can't do any of that stuff. You have received grace and a calling, and you are in the ministry. You and I are part of the same ministry team that Paul was on. In the first century. Do you know that? Same ministry team as Paul. Different period of time, different calling, all on the same team. This is one of the beautiful parts of Scripture that we are carrying out redemptive history even today, even in this little church. We're on the same team. Each of us called to play a particular role in bringing about the obedience of faith in our harvest field. I, I think about folks that have gone out from this little church all over the world doing ministry. For all you guys from Masters who've gone on a short-term mission trip or you've been part of a GO team, I think about our friend Darren Young who we sent out years ago who is currently ministering in the streets of St. Louis, reaching troubled youth in the streets. I think about Josiah and Haley who on Friday, we just, just got the email, Friday they're getting on a plane to go to Ukraine to serve missionary families. I think about Adam and Jesse, who this week are going to Thailand on behalf of Children's Hunger Fund. Even from this little body, we are sending people all over the world. This is the gospel call. This is the gospel call that Paul had. This is the same gospel call that caused Jim Elliott to give up everything, including his life, for the sake of the gospel. It's the same gospel call that Josiah and Haley are responding to, the same gospel call that Adam and Jesse are responding to. 
Sometimes it is risking life and limb. Sometimes it's just going to support other missionary families. Sometimes it's going to set up mercy networks in foreign countries. Sometimes it's right here at home putting up curtains so that people can worship without distraction. You're in the ministry. We're all in the ministry together. So whatever your calling is, do not grow weary. Let us not forget that we're playing a role in redemptive history right now in 2017 in this part of the world. Let us see ourselves as Paul did, always, always, always set apart for the gospel of God. Amen? We bow your heads.